It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening to Preachers on Preaching. This week I speak with William Willimon, who is currently a professor of Christian leadership at Duke Divinity School, is recognized over and over again as one of the most influential preachers in America. He served as the Bishop of Northern Alabama for the United Methodist Church for a number of years. Prior to that was the pastor and preacher at Duke Chapel while he also taught at that point at Duke Divinity School. Reverend Williamon is, uh, I think he's hilarious. He's a very funny man and was deeply influential to me early in my own ministry, largely because of the book he wrote with Stanley Hauerwas, Resident Aliens. That book taught me, and I know many others, how to speak a distinctively Christian and peaceful word at that tough moment in our nation's history and in the history of the church. In upcoming weeks, we're going to have conversations with the poet and preacher Christian Wyman, with Jim Wallace from Sojourners, and many others. Please do continue to email me your suggestions at preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here's Will Willimon preaching during Lent of last year on the story of Lazarus being called forth from the grave. Our lives are not under our soul control. We live on God's time not ours. Um, and, and maybe that applies not only in life, but also in death. It is conventional at the time of someone's death for mourners to say, I am sure that my loved one is now <clears throat> with God in heaven. And that may be the case, but the Historic Orthodox Christianity has more traditionally said that when we die, we wait. The dead wait. The dead lie in state awaiting the last trumpet, awaiting the general resurrection. The dead wait just like Lazarus waited in the tomb. We wait. Maybe our waiting for God in life is is therefore a kind of training to fall back on the everlasting arms in death and wait for God. B- because maybe, that maybe the last Pope was right when he said, only God has a future. We, we don't have a future without the love of God. Uh, a frequently asked question of me when I was exiting as bishop was, what do you think will be your chief legacy? And, and I responded in all seriousness, well, God only knows. <laughs> and I was serious because legacy is God's self-assigned task. We have nothing within us to give ourselves a future. Only God can do that. So, Will Willimon, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. It's an honor to have you here for this conversation. Well, it's an honor to be in conversation. Thank you. 
I guess I wanted to ask you whether when you're, when you're delving into scriptural claims as a preacher that can feel discomforting, um, maybe even absurd, intense, neglected, whether you're, you have a strategy when you approach those kinds of claims or whether, like how, where you're coming from when you make those kinds of claims as a preacher? Um, well, you know, um, I guess in that particular sermon, I didn't think of myself as necessarily discomforting the congregation, but maybe more in a sense of uh, uh, naming some discomfort they already felt at, at waiting. Uh, I do think uh, preachers, we preachers probably try too hard uh, to uh, soften the interpretive dissonance uh, between the biblical text and our context, or we... Uh, you you can watch us preachers. You know we will we'll read some perfectly wild biblical text, and then we'll get up in the pulpit and say things like, uh, "Hey, he didn't mean to hate your mother. Uh, he, here's what he really meant. Uh, if he'd had the benefit of a seminary education, he meant to uh, say put the old lady in proper perspective, or he didn't mean give away everything you have to the poor because that would be irresponsible." And, and in a a kind of uh, a blaspheming, we sort of say, uh, uh, I'm sure you thought there was a, a sort of dissonance between you and Jesus, but I luckily have a gift for reinterpreting Jesus and the Gospels and their truth uh, in such a way that you will be able to say, oh, good, I, I, that's what I've always thought. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that, that's what I've always thought. So the preacher's job, or our misunderstanding of the preacher's job, is to to be the the one who stands in the gap between yeah. the intensity of scripture yeah. and the discomfort that that a parishioner or a congregation might feel. Right. Yeah. So we make it all and, and we I smooth think, it out. As I was taught in seminary, it was sort of like uh, uh, the preacher stands with one foot in the ancient world of scripture and another foot in the contemporary world which, as I remember, Martin Marty said, is a recipe for a hernia. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, 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 I thought I was the one to narrow the gap between us and God uh, in my sermon, to bring God near. Well, I'm kind of thinking, you know, that's God's business, uh, to bring God near to us. Um, my business sometimes is to open up that gap, uh, to play within that gap. Uh, I, I guess in that sermon, I did some of that in saying, uh, hey, am I the only person here who finds it really odd that Jesus hung around three days? Does this seem normal to you? And um, that, that I guess I've over the years, I've come to sort of appreciate that dissonance, that gap, however you describe it, as... Um, a wonderful opportunity for us preachers to note it, to point to it, and then to uh, creatively play around with it. Uh, and um, Eugene Lowry used to say uh, in biblical interpretation, uh, look for the weird. Mm. Uh, stick with the weird. Uh, the weird is interesting. 
The word is fertile uh, for a sermon. Uh, what is not fertile is the commonplace, the already known, the obvious. Uh, and so uh, now I got to admit, maybe one of the weaknesses in my preaching is sometimes I get a bit too infatuated with the weird. One of my problems is I've been preaching for about 45 years now. And forgive me for sort of saying to the congregation, hey, look what I discovered in the biblical text. Here's an odd detail. That I've read, uh, that I've read 400 times before. Yeah. yeah. If I hear you right, if we open that gap up, or at least acknowledge and name it, we then need to trust that it's not up to us to close it, to solve it. Is that, is that what you're getting at? That Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that got there's there's actually a point. I want to read something from from one of your books. There's a point um, in your book, Conversations with Bart on preaching, which I've always found to be very helpful. Yeah, where you name this 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 phenomenon, and you say biblical preachers must cultivate the art of relinquishment, letting go of our dearest insights in deference to the Bible's insights. And then Bart says. The gospel is not in our thoughts or hearts, it is in scripture. The dearest habits and best insights that I have, I must give them all up before listening. I must not use them to protect myself against the breakthrough of a knowledge that derives from scripture. Again and again, I must let myself be contradicted. I must let myself be loosened up. I must be able to surrender everything. Mm. Uh, well said. I, I'm just thinking of all the times I violate that principle. Uh, yeah, but I, I believe in that. I just don't always, I'm not always able to do it. That's a, uh, well, as Bart says elsewhere, between, um, what is, what does he say? Be- between what is possible in theory and what is actual in fact, there inexorably <laughs> lies the fall. Um, <laughs> I was wondering though, did it take you, you've been preaching for 45 years, did it take you a while? to get to the point where you were comfortable in that act of relinquishment, of getting out of the way? Yeah, I, I think uh, particularly I've noticed with endings of sermons, uh, there is that preacherly need to, to tie it up, to say, let me say again, here's what I mean, uh, let me recapitulate or... Uh, uh, to qualify what one has asserted. Uh, and I think that probably comes uh, both from an insecurity you have as a public speaker, but also I think it can be a kind of theological insecurity. Uh, is the Holy Spirit able to speak for itself? Uh, can a God make a way uh, to someone uh, or not? And... Uh, I, Stanley Harawas once said about my preaching, after a sermon I preached, he said, uh, you have too damn much faith in your congregation. <laughs> and uh, I said, that's a lie. I don't trust them any farther than I could throw them. Uh, I know them better than you do, and they're killers. Uh, but uh, I hope, I hope I gained a kind of trust in God. I, I And not to sound too pious, but I think... The longer you preach, the more you're surprised that God speaks. Uh, God says more than we say or that we intended to say. Uh, Jesus' parables, 
I think, are a model for us, mm. where Jesus sort of ends and says, uh, if you got ears to hear, hear. Yeah. If you don't have ears, uh, here's another story. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we don't know in the story of the prodigal son uh, if the older brother ever loosened up and joined the party. We don't know if the younger son ever grew more responsible and uh, went to law school. Uh, we, we're pretty darn sure they didn't live happily ever after as a family. Uh, but uh, I think Jesus does not tie it all up uh, maybe to give the Holy Spirit room to romp among the congregation. And uh, uh, Henry Nouwen says in his book, The Living Reminder, that we pastors should be very careful about the last words we use when we're leaving a hospital room. Because he said, sometimes we have to leave so that God can come. And sometimes the last words we speak are in a sense, okay, we've had prayer, we've had a conversation, and now I'm going to leave you with God. And um, I like that applied to preaching. Oh, that's great. It's interesting liturgically, too. Like, we have this impulse, as you just said, I think partially, too, as sort of like the mistake of a sermon for an essay. You want to have your concluding statement. You want to sew everything up at the end as a, as a, as a literary piece. But liturgically, yes. well, the end, the, we've got, if, to make room for the Spirit, the conclusion of a sermon is not the end of the worship service, right? There's, at least in my church, there's a good half an hour afterward for the Spirit to intercede yeah. for things to continue unfolding. And I've asked pastors sometimes, when does a sermon end? And pastors agree. Uh, sometimes it's months later. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, that in a sense, the, the, the sermon, the best you can say with the sermon is we pray that it will be the beginning of some divine human revelation, communication. Uh, I remember, this is a, the Christian Century podcast, uh, but when I left the parish and went to teach at Duke back in the 70s for the first time, um, an editor of the Christian Century said, oh, gee, now you're not going to be any good as a writer to us. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you'll start writing like a professor. Nobody wants to read anything professors write. And uh, I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, you write like a preacher. Uh, you go in, you hit them in the stomach, and then you leave. <laughs> and uh, said in the Christian century, we don't have a lot of space for someone to mount an argument. We don't have a lot of space for you to prove that you've writ read everything written on this subject. We don't have enough time for you to qualify carefully every statement you make. And she said, we like you because you write like a preacher. Uh, you don't try to be fair. You don't try to be balanced. Uh, you, you just go in there and you want them to hear you, and then you leave. Well, I, I think that's a nice observation of why preachers do some great communication, and sometimes our best communication is when we stop. And I kind of love it when people say to me, gosh, you didn't give us a good ending. And I said, because I don't know what it is. That's your job. It's my job to get this story out there. Uh, it's your job to actually live it. I read somewhere in one of your writings where you said, 
No, the, the true test of the sermon's effectiveness is not the conclusion in the middle of a worship service, but Monday. Oh, I like that. I, you, you've got some great quotes from me. I'm not sure I said all this, but <laughs> I, love, I love your uh, repeating them. I was saying to the congregation the other day, uh, gosh, I've been working with Jesus for a long time, and uh, I'm still able to be shocked by him. I'm, being able, I'm still able to be shocked, particularly by the people that he enlists to do his work. Uh, I am shocked at the inappropriate places he shows up in, uh, including my sermons. And uh, in a way, that's sort of faith engendering. Uh, Absolutely. And one of the, to, to go back to that way in which the church... Mm-hmm embodies all of this and becomes the body of Christ. It's in those communities, right, where, at least in my context here in Chicago, it's a massively segregated place, not only racially, but also socioeconomically and mm-hmm. and chronologically. So a young person can go through their entire work week and really never have any encounter with somebody who's not older than 45 years old. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, seniors who live in these, you know, senior citizen mm-hmm. high rises can spend their whole time and not run into anybody who's younger than 70. And the church becomes this place where we mix it up and we come together. I was thinking about, I, I ministered in the suburbs for a while in a very, um, a place that the whole community was of one mind and, and um, not in the way that Acts would have us be, but, but of one sort of like slice of humanity and they were good liberals and they wished that they were a more diverse community and they would pray for that actually. And we talked about it a lot. And then this guy showed up in the congregation who had moved to the suburb to live with his mom and he suffered a closed head injury as a child and he started coming to worship and in the joys and concerns one Sunday. So this is after months of the congregation wishing it were more diverse. This guy shows up and he pops up after a couple of weeks in the joys and concerns and he kind of shouts out, I just want you to pray for me because my parents forced me to have a vasectomy when I was 17 years old. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and it was, and the, you know, the, of course, you know, that afternoon I had people in my office, what are we going to do about this guy? We got to shut him up. You got to put a yeah. muzzle on him. And I remember thinking, well, <laughs> you prayed for a more diverse congregation and now you got it. <laughs> I love that. So and, those, um, I love church as the place where yeah. there's room for that, right? And I, I would, I would want to claim that as a, a probable, possible work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm thinking about one of my pet peeves is going to smaller congregations, and the pastor says, "And now we let's have prayer requests. What are the prayer requests?" Well, I never hear any prayer requests except for the physical deterioration of older adults, and within that congregation. I find very little justification in Scripture for that being prayer. And uh, Christian prayer is, you know, well, if that guy shouted that out as at the prayer request time, I'd say, you know, I think a vasectomy trumps your broken hip. Uh, I, I think now, now we got something to talk about. <laughs> we got something for Jesus to do here. And... Uh, uh, it's not news when somebody my age has health problems. That's kind of the way God set it up. That's what we're supposed to do at my age. Uh, but it, 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 
I love the fact, and in fact, I have said, I said it in the Christian century, that I, I think many of us are guilty of making ministry less interesting than God intends it to be. And when ministry degenerates into just keeping house, uh, uh, but I love that. And I just love a God who would say, okay, you wanted some diversity? I know you had in mind a nice family uh, from another race that would show up and I'll, I'm going to give you some diversity. <laughs> and, uh, and in a way, it's like God saying, I'm going to give you a chance to be more than the men's garden club. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to be the body of Christ. And you may be surprised by yourself in this. And uh, so by your way of exactly, because you'll get <laughs> stretched. And that church really did and responded to it in a wonderful way. The, I love it. I'd like to ask you about the different context in which you've <clears throat> been a preacher. So you started as a parish pre preacher. You went into academia. You stepped out. Have you found, did you find, how did your preaching change when you went from a local parish into an academic setting? Did you feel like you had to retool? Did you feel like you had to change your approach? Or, or? You know, I've been a bishop for eight years in a non, a distinctly non-academic setting. Uh, so I'd done some of that. One little way my preaching changed, well, it wasn't little for me, it was little maybe, but uh, I followed a young man who was a masterful preacher without notes. <clears throat> and um, he would just, he had the most well-crafted, thoughtful sermons, but he was famous, and, and it really built that church. I mean, it had gotten a lot of response in the four years he was there uh, to just coming out from behind the pulpit and staring at you in the face full frontal and delivering the gospel. Well, that meant that when I went, uh, I thought, gee, I don't look as good as he does full frontal, but uh, uh, I had to work up my sermon and then spend a couple hours extra uh, learning the sermon so that I could come out from behind the pulpit, stare them in the face, never looking at my notes, and deliver the sermon. So in that way, I changed. Uh, again, I think preachers do this. Uh, you go to a different congregation, you find they have a different definition of preaching, or you learn, uh, gee, the person I followed got really good response with this mode of preaching. Uh, you know, that's kind of typical of Preachers are demanded, but again, that's one thing I love about preaching. It's it's always on the move, not only because the culture is on the move, our congregations hear differently and all, but also because we serve a living God and the Holy Spirit is on the move. And that takes a lot of humility, though, that for you as an esteemed preacher to come in and say, you know what, the guy, <laughs> this young guy before me, had this method. It worked, and I see that it worked, and I'm not going to like force these people to adjust to my style or tone. But it's part of the joy. Uh, about three or four years ago, I got hooked on TED Talks, and I would was listening to all these TED Talks on astronomy and computer memory and artificial intelligence and all kind of stuff I had no interest in and no knowledge of. But I was just, as, as somebody in the communication business, I just marveled that these people just walked out on the stage and 
suddenly gripped me and then walked off the stage in about 12, 15 minutes. Um, and um, I, I, I was addicted. You live in Chicago, and if I lived in Chicago, I wouldn't be doing a podcast. I would be down at one of the comedy clubs <laughs> in Chicago every night. Every time I'm in Chicago, I, I, I love to go down to those comedy clubs. And I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to somebody that... Uh, I'm thinking, gosh, he's crude, and, and this is a vulgar language and all. But I said, I feel I'm with a brother. This, this really feels home to me. And my theory for that is you get a guy that walks out on stage. I've never heard of him. He's never heard of us. And I'm there with a bunch of strangers. And in 10 minutes, some guy has got his arm around me laughing and say, that's true, isn't it? I got a guy at work acts just like that. And I'm thinking, hey, guy, take your hand off me. I don't know you. Uh, what this guy has done is through nothing but words has created a community. Isn't that amazing? There's, I love that. There's, there's a line from a rock and roll song I like where the guy suddenly stops and he shouts out, power to the people making money with their mouths. And ah, the first yeah. time I heard that, I mean, I don't agree that's with the me. sentiment whatsoever, but I thought, that's me he's talking about. Yeah, Absolutely. and I, I get it. It's funny. Sometimes you, you'll hear people, I, I hear people at mm -hmm. least, apologizing for what I think is poor preaching by saying, it's an outmoded method of communication. Nobody does this mm -hmm. anymore. How unusual is it for people to stop and listen to anybody talking for 20 minutes or 15 minutes? And my response in the back of my mind is always, that's happening all the time, as you just said, in comedy clubs and oh, TED yeah. Talks. It's, um, no, I think, you know, we were told, we've been told for a while, hey, preaching cannot uh, compete with electronic media. Uh, preaching's on the way out. Well, there is a weird sense in which electronic media has restored the power of one human being standing up and giving testimony yeah. in front of other human beings. And I think there's just something inherent in the Christian faith that is auditory, acoustical. Uh, it, it basically travels by one human being talking to another one. You know, so... Absolutely. I, I, I think and preaching is here to stay and maybe even is coming back into its own in an interesting way. In your own life as a preacher, my sense of having listened to and watched a lot of your sermons is you have a, your style is, in a, in a strange way, it's light. And even as it's light and disarming through its lightness, there is this deep gravity. And as I was saying at the very beginning of our conversation, these claims that are extreme and intense and are pointing toward the cross, is that something that you worked at, that, that juxtaposition? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't remember consciously working on anything like that, but that doesn't mean that I didn't work on it and that I, uh, uh, I mean, I like your description of that. Um, was, you know, I love humor. Uh, I, uh, I find a lot of humor in scripture. Uh, I hope God has a sense of humor when he's uh, evaluating me. Uh, but uh, sometimes I get into trouble with humor, and sometimes I think my humor gets away with me. It 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 uh, it serves to trivialize the message or not. 
you know, and, and I, I don't like sort of being funny, uh, but I, I do like um, uh, enjoying the incongruities, the ironies, the absurdities of the gospel laid alongside us. And, uh, I, and I must say, you know, when I'm with people, uh, many times people will comment on the humor, and I never know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, uh, but I, I was quoting uh, the great uh, theologian George Carlin tonight in a Bible study I was doing at our house. And uh, we were talking about spirituality, and I was saying I was suspicious of spirituality, and I said, uh, as George Carlin said, as best he could tell, being spiritual is whatever you're doing when you're feeling really, really good about yourself. <laughs> and I said, that's that's a scathing kind of challenge. And uh, so, isn't, isn't that something that when we have an ecstatic experience, I think oftentimes what we're having is an enlarged experience of our own self, right? That's what you were just saying. That's what Carlin says. And to figure out the distinction between that, yeah, that experience of the expanded self and, an, yeah. and not to immediately claim that as being God. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. And maybe well, again, you spoke of church as sort of training. I think, uh, Sam's church is training and discernment, uh, uh, getting skills for critical evaluation of our experiences. Um, uh, uh, so you have a new book that you've just published with Stanley Hauerwas, written with Stanley Hauerwas, just came out, Holy Spirit. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about that book. Okay. And in particular to, to, to touch on where you see the role of the spirit in preaching. How do we preach a sense of the spirit as being present and grounded in the bodies amongst us, right? And in the body that we constitute as the church as opposed to being this thing that is a, either a gloss or floating beyond us? Well, I think it's a great, uh, this is a great temptation and a great fallacy of a lot of contemporary, quote, spirituality. Uh, I find it helpful to say, you know, Christianity is not a spiritual thing. It's an incarnational thing. Uh, uh, also, I, I'm very suspicious of attempts to depersonalize uh, the Holy Spirit uh, in that, uh, like I enjoy, I'm, I'm using uh, Acts of the Apostles um, in a class I'm teaching on uh, Christian leadership, ordained leadership. But, but I've asked the class, uh, it, it, from the book of Acts, describe the personality of the Holy Spirit. And the students come up with stuff like, destructive, uh, creative, uh, showing up at the wrong time, uh, dragging the church, kicking and screaming all over Asia Minor, uh, uh, doing really weird stuff that is completely unexpected and inexplicable, uh, having a great sense of humor, uh, you know. Uh, and I think that's it's very important uh, that the Holy Spirit keep being linked to Jesus Christ. It, it is his spirit. So when so, you speak of depersonalizing the spirit, it's divorcing the spirit from Christ. 
Yeah. And letting uh, it, assuming that it's its own independent the Holy Spirit thing. is not some impersonal force. Uh, it is uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in action, uh, in power, in movement. Uh, but don't you, will you agree with me when I say that I think for us good mainline liberal Protestants, um, this this kind of talk makes us nervous. Oh, uh, absolutely. We don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we, and therefore we often drive uh, neo-charismatics out of our churches or we, uh, I've got some Pentecostals uh, who sit on the front row of a class I'm teaching. Uh, they all are African-American. Uh, but again and again, they will make comments in class that I realize that being Pentecostal is not uh, uh, being sort of anti-intellectual. It, it's maybe taking the intellect to a new power mm -hmm. uh, beyond words, beyond what passes for logic, a sense that if it's about God, it's probably going to break language, be more than language. Uh, it will be emotional as well as rational. So after the Methodist General Conference, I, I left uh, the last session and Wanted, I did, but I wanted to get on my knees on the holy and on the sidewalk and say outside the convention center and say, "Oh, Holy Spirit, forgive us! This whole thing was a contrivance to keep you out of the building." And uh, go ahead and tear the roof off if you want to. Set it on fire. Shake the foundations. Come on, we we need this. Uh, it it is uh, interesting how. Uh, I've asked pastors, who is the most threatening person of the Trinity? And uh, the the overwhelming candidate is the third person of the Trinity. Mm. Uh, and uh, but but again, back to preaching. I I just think uh, in preaching, I think you in the act of preaching over time, you you develop a robust pneumatology. Uh, in that you uh, you have these experiences uh, of people hearing more than you said, yeah. uh, of the God touching the wrong people, uh, and uh, Sunday a man comes out of my sermon in Georgia and said, "Well, uh, something has happened here today. Uh, my mind has been changed." Thank you. Mm. And I said, hey, uh, that's great. I mean, to change somebody's mind in Georgia, that's pretty good. Uh, what what was it about my sermon that you found changing? And he said, I don't remember anything about your sermon. I'm just saying that whatever it was, I, I'm looking at things differently. Well, that to me is a kind of everyday, typical observation of the work of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, when I work hard on a sermon and I give it my best effort and I deliver it in a well-modulated voice with hand gestures from the torso and nothing happens, <laughs> nobody hears anything and everybody just goes home, that also can be a testimonial to the freedom, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit to bless some of my work and refuse to bless other parts of my work uh, as a bishop, 
many times I'd preach my heart out uh, visiting in a church, and it was obvious they didn't like anything I said, and they all sat there with their arms folded staring at me, and nobody said anything after the service. And I'd get in my car, and I'd said, you know, is it too much to ask you to show up? You know, it's Alabama. I need some help with the lifting. Come on. It wasn't that bad a sermon. But we can't, right? Our eloquence, even our need, can't muster the the spirit. That's beautifully said. I love that. Our eloquence and even our need cannot uh, order the Holy Spirit. It's, It's not grace if it's predictable programmable uh but but again that's kind of part of the fun and the agony of being a preacher Mm. that uh uh i remember one of the student ushers stepped into my gothic washroom at duke chapel and came out and he said to the other uh ushers he said uh will has got stomach medicine in his washroom and so one of the students said uh, you need stomach medicine to preach to people like us? And I said, no, don't flatter yourselves. I, I need stomach medicine to preach with the Trinity. I said, <laughs> I, I've been at this a lot longer than you have, kid, and you never know what God might do <laughs> during my sermons. So one wonders how many of our homiletics classes uh, with their stress on technique and methodology and presentation, etc., uh, how many, how much of that is an evasion of dependence on the Holy Spirit? Mm. To say, hey kids, uh, I'm going to give you a knockdown, surefire way to preach. Now, watch me. I'm follow my guidelines here. Write this down, and this will work. Uh, I think that's really interesting. It comes back to what we were saying earlier about or your conversation, our conversation about conclusions. The the book that I refer students to and have relied upon myself for years is the Four Pages of the Sermon. Do you know this book? Oh, yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's a great book, but it, but it also it's a method that says yeah. implicitly yeah. at least use this method and you'll get these results. Which but, I, and maybe that is exactly the way to start uh, because it's so terrifying to think, gee, I got to do a sermon. Give somebody a good method. Let them learn the basics. Let them let them internalize that method. Like you playing basketball, you, you got to get the basics. You got to get the mechanics. You got to get it the habit down. But in a game, you know, you're not thinking where are my feet placed, uh, uh, where are my hands. Uh, you're just doing it. Yeah. Well, well, preaching gets to be like that too. But uh, the method is is good. I'm I am saying that. Uh, I can testify as an experienced preacher, I don't give a rip how good your method is and how smart you are and how eloquent you are with the English language. It can fail. (laughs) And uh, it often does. And um, uh, I I guess that's one reason I've always thanked God I was an English major. And uh, I've always been drawn to art. uh, And uh, the... And I love the fact that artists dare, and they they walk out on that tightrope, and sometimes they gracefully get to the other side, and it's a beautiful piece of art, and it works. And other times uh, they fall flat on their face, and um, but that's part of the joy, the glory. Uh, so, 
I want to ask you about your reading. You're a voracious reader, from from what I read, anyhow. Um, about your about your reading, and um, for instance, the, I read the review that you wrote of my struggle, the Karlov Knausgaard yeah. books in in the century recently. And um, how do you find when you're doing when when you read secular literature? How, do you carry it into the pulpit with you? How does it affect your preaching? You know, I, I think maybe the best effect is indirect, uh, unstated. Uh, it, it changes me, uh, often in ways I'm unaware of or can't articulate. Uh, I remember years ago, Betty Ochtemeyer, who was a great Presbyterian preacher, uh, in one of her books, she talks about the use of poetry in the pulpit. And she said, uh, generally, if it's, Good poetry, it 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 takes time. You got to go over it a number of times. You've got to let the poem speak to you on its own terms and on time. If it's bad poetry, uh, it doesn't require explanation. It's just rank sentimentality. Uh, why would you want to use bad poetry in a sermon? Therefore never use poetry in a sermon. <laughs> and uh, there's somewhat, I find about using literature, it kind of pisses the congregation off uh, when you say, uh, you know, I was reading a very thick novel by a Norwegian the other day. Well, most congregations sitting there saying, I wish I didn't work for a living and I could sit around and read these stupid novels like the preacher does. Uh, and it can be condescending and all. Uh, so I think it, uh, you know, I guess I like what it does to me. Uh, I'm reading a novelist, and I'm thinking, here's a guy that's trying to create a world with words. Well, that's me. I do that. Uh, and and here's a person showing me something about the human condition that's important. Uh, and in my new book, uh, uh, it's coming out in October. Uh, here's a blurb for it, but... Uh, how Odd of God, and it's a book about preaching. Uh, and I'd love for you, friend, you've interviewed me sometime on that. I'd but, love to talk about uh, it. Uh, when it comes out. But uh, I talk about the experience of going to see the movie American Hustle. Mm. Uh, you didn't see the movie American Hustle. No, it, I, I... just it, it's a sleazy group of characters. The theme of the movie, as I interpret it, is in America, everybody's got a hustle. Everybody's doing it for the money, whether you work for the FBI or whether you're a gangster and all. And in the end of the movie, the cheap, tacky hustlers, this couple, turn out to be the only people with any moral sense uh, and any goodness in them, as opposed to the government agents. Uh, well, I walk out of the movie and I think, gee, I'm preaching tomorrow. And my sermon is not going to have as much truth as that darn Hollywood movie that did it for the money. Mm. Uh, well, I think it's good for preachers to see that. So, so rather than sort of lifting up literature or film as like a sign of your own erudition or yeah. examples, the indirect influence that you're talking about is to look at the way in which these methods of telling the human story are doing that well, right? And then 
catching an influence and of from course, them. We preachers are always looking for clues, uh, what's going on in the culture, what's going on in human life. That's uh, what I think about those Knausgaard books. The, oh. the, the just like diligence with which he's paying attention to his own life. Um, yeah. As I read those books, I don't know if this really pertains to preaching so much, but just in terms of the one's personal sense of gratitude, I found myself as I read them slowing down, you can't help. I mean, he's transfixing, right? And yeah. paying attention to my own life much more carefully and then in turn feeling, and he, of course, he's not talking in this way, but for me, the end result was, it's weird. I mean, these, these books written by this atheist Northern European made me feel much closer to God because they made me stop and just kind of think about my day more, which leads to gratitude or confession or whatever. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's one reason we honor great basketball players and we honor great artists. Uh, it, it kind of makes me feel better as a human being uh, to think, you know, I, I wish this person were a Christian, but maybe it would take a Christian to say, Boy, God, you did a great job on that human being. That that is a marvelous work of genius. And uh, but at the same time, also with Carl uh, Ovi uh, Nosgard, uh, I think um, you know we 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 are. I mean, maybe it's a prejudiced Christian uh, observation, uh, but. Uh, we, we really do long for redemption, and this life, as good as it is, particularly under this sort of uh, searing stare, uh, this, this may not be enough. Uh, this, uh, there, there's still something lacking here. Did you find yourself wanting to evangelize him as you were reading those books? Oh, I did, but I'm, I'm a sucker for these types, I guess, after being around the university a lot. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for this conversation. And it's it's an honor to have you as a guest on Preachers on Preaching, and I hope you'll come back and uh, talk to us again. Oh, I'd love to. And now just speaking personally again, um, I can't tell you how, how grateful I am to the good work that you've done and, and really how influential it's been for me. I started preaching right after 9-11, and I, I think, I mean, I was queued up for it, for, for the approach that, that you and Stanley Harawas take in, in Resident Aliens from my experience at YDS. But if it hadn't been for, for your work, I don't know if I would have known what to do in those, in those times. Sure. And um, it's, Yeah, it's been deeply influential and, and, yeah. and remarkably helpful. I- Get depressed. I'm going to call you anytime, day or night. Say, Matt, talk to me. Tell me how great I am. Whisper some stuff in my ear. Come on. So, thanks, Matt. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.